0: Hello. Today, on How to Be a Human Being, we're talking about trauma informed care with Katie. Katie is a licensed social worker in Montana and Alaska. We had an excellent conversation about trauma informed care and what that is. Katie provided us with lots of great questions to think about and left us with a few of her favorite tips and tricks. You can find Katie at mindfulspacetelehealth.com. Let's get to the episode. My
1: name is Katie Frutiger. I am a social worker licensed in the states of Alaska and Montana. I currently run a small mental health private practice that has kind of a lot of different layers in it with one-on-one group family therapy, community presentations, and consulting and supervision to kind of meet a lot of different areas of need in rural and remote
0: uh, communities. So, Katie, what got you into therapy? You know, how did you decide you wanted to be a therapist?
1: That is a very convoluted question, right? Kind of comes from just childhood experiences with friends and family and uh, kind of finding a passion, actually, when I got to college. I was not your typical good student in any way, shape, or form when I was in K through 12, and suddenly when I got to university level, I got excited and I I actually enjoyed learning and enjoying your learning kind of kept me also as a good human
0: (laughs) and out of trouble. And what was the, like the motivator for you to finish your degree, to continue your education and then to go on and start your own practice?
1: You know, in a lot of ways, it kind of found me. My mother is a, is a, an Italian woman who's very strict and she told me I had to go to school. And I actually started out school with the degree of criminology with an emphasis in juvenile delinquency. And a lot of that kind of was shaped from my childhood where a lot of friends and family got into different drugs and addictions um, and doing various criminal activity. And as I was in that degree, I found social work and I was like, this is way cooler and broader. It's not so reactive to a problem, it's more prevention. And and how do we address these community systems and and things like that? And as I got into social work, I also fell in love with psychology and public policy. So I got four degrees in my undergrad. (laughs) And uh, then realized you couldn't do anything with any of those degrees until you had your master's. So I saved up and, and went back to school for my master's in social work with an emphasis with a school certificate certification with that.
0: And what does that school certification mean? What does that allow you to do?
1: Professionally allows me to work in schools at an enhanced capacity. So you have to have with that specialization, you have to have your practicum in a school placement. So with a supervisor who is a a licensed social worker in that field. And then you have to take in addition to your normal master's coursework, coursework special education law. FERPA laws, which are kind of those laws that navigate how student records are distributed, and which is different than HIPAA, which is medical, but in a lot of ways line up. And then as well as a class in just school social work, so social work in a school setting and kind of all the different assessment models and ways that you navigate your
0: coursework or your caseload. Knowing a little bit about your your background. You spent some time up in Alaska working in some schools up there. Do you have anything you learned up there you could share with us?
1: There was a lot of learning that happened up there. I lived in a region of Alaska that was not on the road system. I was about 400 miles west of Anchorage, and Anchorage was the nearest city on the road system. I lived in a region that is Yupik tribal grounds, and the Yupik people are... I think one of the largest tribal entities in North America that predominantly speaks their own language and lives a subsistence culture. So it was a, every day was learning. You know, it was very different than the way I was raised or brought up and you had to be open and and humble and, and have a little humility to, to learn something new every single day.
0: I kind of want to start getting down into the meat and potatoes of this conversation. Question number one is, what qualifies as trauma? I I
1: put some thought into that question because it really depends on which way you're looking at it. If you're looking at it from a clinical perspective with a diagnosis using the the DSM or the Diagnostical Statistical Manual, kind of for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is kind of the relevant diagnostical criteria for a trauma-related disorder is exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence in one or more ways. And kind of to be diagnosed with this, you have to also have the presence of one or more reoccurrent, involuntary, and intrusive, distressing memory, dreams of content, and dissociative reactions or flashbacks, which I am bringing that up because I'm going to talk about that one as it relates to general trauma. And some of that can include intense or prolonged psychological distress at exposure to internal or external cues and marked physiopsychological reactions to internal cues that symbolize traumatic events. So kind of in that clinical bubble, how those those behaviors or thoughts or cognitions manifest can be different across different populations of people. But kind of trauma in general is just kind of defined as an emotional response to a terrible event. And, And kind of that can manifest differently depending on a lot of different issues. So just that definition, it's a, it's a emotional reaction to something that's happened in your life. That is what trauma is essentially. It's
0: so an emotional re- reaction to something that has happened in your life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I like that. That's the, I, I like the, the big intense words definition. And I like the five-year-old version. <laughs> so, you know, I've heard trauma kind of classified in two ways in my life. And that's like the big T trauma and the little T trauma. Have you heard that? And do you use that at all?
1: Maybe you could kind of talk about that a little bit more.
0: Yeah. So the big T trauma would be the big, big things that happen in your life. If there was abuse, if there was you know, physical, verbal, sexual, anything like that. And then the little T traumas is like, Joey hit you on the playground as a kid and you know, bullied you a little bit. And it didn't really affect anything in your life. But you realize 10 years down the road that there was just like that one little thing that maybe wasn't, you know, a huge part of your life that has shaped you in ways that you didn't expect.
1: Well, I, I kind of like the differentiation of that big T and the little T, but kind of in terms of crediting something as a little T, I guess just in the the frame of your example, right? Something happened when you were a child, you got over it then and it comes back later. So some of that can be, you know, relived trauma through a relapse or or through a flashback, right? And some of that isn't necessarily a trauma, but a learning experience, something that's created and shaped the way you view the world, which is any experience, whether it's trauma related or not, helps you view and, and shape your world.
0: So we've got kind of a good little definition going here of trauma as an emotional response to a terrible event. And that kind of leads into the next question I had. Maybe are there different kinds of trauma? Absolutely.
1: Trauma can occur once on multiple occasions. I, I mean, it can have an individual experience or more than one type of trauma, right? So PTSD is the mental health disorder associated when someone's experiences or witnesses a trauma. And some of that can go into physical sexual or emotional. So that emotional side is is maybe more neglect and kind of things around that. Um, They can be acute, it can happen one time and cause a physiological response. It can be chronic where they're experiencing the same thing over and over and over again, maybe in an abusive relationship. Or it can be complex and they have just lots of things that are happening in their life that are traumatic that kind of add up. for the disorder, for the clinical description, those kind of symptoms need to manifest for more than a month, but can begin as, as late as three years later.
0: Really? That is, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, they, with the new, so kind of trauma in general has had a very long history. The emergence of post-traumatic stress disorder didn't even come into the DSM until the 1980s. And a lot of that was due to the Vietnam War and kind of reactions that veterans were having coming home from the war without with, you know, their whole frame of reality being challenged by a lot of peaceful protesters. Right. I'm, I'm air quoting that because in a lot of ways they were not peaceful. It was it was um, emotional warfare on, on a lot of people. And kind of even going back further than that, going into the early 50s, or late 50s, early 60s was kind of that deinstitutionalization process, where we were looking at psychiatric units as holding cells, right? And, and we had a mass amount of people who were released with no aftercare in sight, right? So we had a president who said, hey, I'm going to take all this money away from psychiatric units. I want you to revamp this and make this better. And then the Vietnam War started and all that money he took from mental health went into the Vietnam War. And now we have all these veterans coming back with serious complex and chronic traumas who have no cushion or support. So in the 1980s, they finally said, "Okay, we're we need to address this issue and we need to address it fine. Right. So originally, PTSD was targeted towards veterans, rape victims, genocide victims, right? A, a lot of these kind of bigger, more concrete. And as they started researching the way symptoms manifested, they've inter- introduced now medical trauma, childhood adverse experience trauma, right? And and I kind of want to get into that A study a little bit more, but that trauma label has grown so much with how research looks into how it manifests in your brain how trauma is stored in your brain how it's stored in your body and and how it impacts
0: everything that you do so maybe we could dive into that a little bit what are some of the ways that trauma is stored in your body and manifests itself that's another big one so but to kind of
1: keep it simple and in sake of time right we have uh, a stress response right And some of those stress responses are very important to us, like getting stressed out before an exam might push us to work a little bit harder, right? That's not the type of stress I'm talking about. I'm talking about toxic and chronic stress. So if you look back to the reason our brain works the way it works, biologically, our ancestors had to have a stress response and be aware of safety in their area, right? Is a saber tooth tiger going to jump out at me? Is there a mammoth going to stomp on my, my child, right? We're always in that kind of stress response assessing for safety. We don't necessarily have those physical outside stressors, but we still can manifest them emotionally. So if you kind of look at your brain and the inside of your brain, I'm using my my fist here, there's something called your amygdala. And your amygdala is in essence, your stress response, right? When you perceive something through your eyes, through your ears, through smell, through sense of touch, the first place it goes is to your amygdala and your amygdala is attached to your hippocampus. So it's, and your hippocampus is where you store memories. So basically, essentially it's going through your list of memories and experiences and saying, is this safe? Or am I at risk of harm here? And if you're, if you have an amygdala response, as a lot of people are saying, it's kind of that flip your lid response, right? You've got your amygdala inside your fist. And if you perceive something as threatening, and remember, it's perception. It's not real. It could be perceived threat. You flip your lid, which means your brain is dumping cortisone and adrenaline which biologically allows you to get away from perceived fear of safety. What it's actually doing in your brain is disconnecting your frontal lobe. So your frontal lobe is where you apply any logic or reasoning or problem solving to a situation. When you're having an amygdala response, a a perceived safety issue, your body's natural ability to protect itself dumps adrenaline, tells you to get away, fight, flight, or freeze in any of those situations, right? And, and it causes a lot of judgments to be impaired because it is literally disconnecting your
0: frontal lobe. So how could someone realize this was happening? Maybe somebody who had some trauma as a kid or in the past and they've never received help for it. They've just said, you know, I got over this. They think they're doing completely fine. What are some signs that they could look for to say, oh, wait, maybe I didn't deal with this?
1: You know, a lot of that is comes with that dissociative disorder part of PTSD, right? It, it's disassociating yourself from your reality, having gigantic reactions to a small issue, right? Something that that to somebody else is perceived as that that's not a safety issue at all. You're very much so overreacting to that, and some of that is your amygdala response, and it may not even be similar at all in anybody else's mind to the trauma that you experienced, but maybe something you saw or heard or smelled or felt or sensed triggered that past trauma. And now this scenario where you are late for an exam and your professor says, why are you late? You react in a way that is very aggressive because it it triggers your brain into that hippocampus and says, hey, before when I was questioned about things like this, I was going to get beaten or sexually assaulted. And this is, has not, none of those safety precautions related to it, but that's what your brain's telling you.
0: Yeah. That is a really, really good explanation of that. A, like a big reaction to a small issue. So I think that that could pro- probably be called like the fight response. W-
1: Fight, flight, or freeze kind of can all be related in that. You know, the fight is obviously you're in, in confrontation. Okay. And then the freeze, you might just not be able to say anything and sometimes appear to be ignorant of something or appear to be naive, right? And it's it's just a response that's coming out of your brain. It's nothing that is any frame of reference on your intelligence. And then you have flight where you just want to get out of there. And sometimes you might compulsively lie about something just to get out of that situation. And in any three of those responses, you're also having that physiological response, increased heart rate, sweating, racing thoughts, fidgeting behaviors, all of those kind of come into that as well.
0: This has been very good, honestly, to kind of break it down for people Part of this show is just encouraging people that if they need help to go get help, but sometimes it's hard to recognize when you need help. And so if you maybe have experienced this, you walk in and somebody says something and you just have a giant reaction or you freeze up and just can't function anymore. This might be a good time to think about going and talking to somebody about your past. So let's kind of keep on moving and talk a little bit about trauma-informed care. So I think this puts it all in one basket. Am I right on that? Well, this
1: is kind of a, it's not new and emerging, but it's finally getting some face value in in American politics and media. And if you want, I can just jump right into my nerd spiel.
0: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) What is it?
1: So the adverse childhood experience, uh, it's called the ACE study. And this is really when adverse childhood experiences or experiences of childhood trauma finally were recognized as something that that the CDC needs to pay attention to, that the psychiatric units need to pay attention to, that just medical professionals in general need to pay attention to. And it the first study, was conducted at Kaiser Permenti from 1995 to 1997. And over at that time, they they went into over 17,000 health entities around California mainly, was where the original study was done. And they basically did an interview process with people who were seeking any kind of medical help. And they asked 10 questions around abuse That could be emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, household challenges. How was your mother treated? Was your mother treated violently in front of you? Was there substance abuse in the household? Was there a mental illness in the household? Was there parental separation or divorce? Was there incarcerated household member? And then that last category was on neglect. So emotional neglect or physical neglect. So 10 questions total. And you got you could either answer yes or no to these questions. So a yes gave you an A score of one, right? So you could score anywhere from zero, like none of this happened, to an A score of 10. All of these ha- things happened to me before I was the age of 18. And with this, they found a number of things. But the most kind of big thing that made people actually pay attention is the higher your ACE score, the more likely you were to develop diabetes, cancer, or heart disease. Obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but kind of perceptionally, we can assume that someone with a higher A score is going to have higher rates of mental health illness in their own family, higher rates of incarceration or school dropout, right? We, we kind of knew that going into it, but this study really broke it down. And when it's actively addressing diabetes, cancer, and heart disease, things that our tax dollars are affected by, people started paying attention. So when this study kind of first came out, people were excited. They want, okay, what do we do about this? And what they found is the higher your A score, the more correlated you were to these health diseases. But... They did find individuals who had an A-score of 10 who had none of these negative health outcomes. And they started studying that. Why, why were these individuals having successful health outcomes mentally and medically and physically and, and emotionally with all these things going on? And, and what they found was a whole list of things from these individuals between after-school activities, sports community church you know all of these different kind of protective factors that helped them get through these adverse child experiences but the number one thing a- across all of the individuals they interviewed was this idea of resiliency and this idea that they had one just one healthy adult that checked in on them on a regular basis maybe that was a coach or a teacher or a or their priest, someone who just on a regular basis said, how are you doing? What's going on? And with all that research started trauma-informed care, right? So with the A study, we found, we not only found out your, the higher your ACE score, the more correlated to medical and mental issues in your future, but we also found out they're super common. 68% of individuals have at least an A score of one. And one in, of six people they interviewed had three or more, right? I mean, that's huge. A lot of people have adverse childhood experiences. So how do we kind of cushion that? And that's what trauma-informed care is. How, how can we have more positive outcomes, like the individuals they interviewed who had an ACE score of 10 and had no negative health outcomes? And with that comes in trauma-informed care in schools. How are we checking in on kids? maybe parenting classes, free child care in communities, all of these different things kind of go into
0: trauma-informed care. That is probably the best five, 10-minute explanation I could ever ask for of trauma-informed care. I did some research on this in preparation for this podcast, but that was far more in-depth and far greater, so thank you. And I just had one thing I kind of wanted to jump back to in this study, right? You said that they noticed that people would have a higher chance of diabetes and heart disease. And immediately my brain went back to our conversation earlier of the fight, flight, or freeze. And is that connected that, oh, these higher stress levels are leading to heart disease? Has that
1: been connected? So cortisone is a stress chemical that's released in your brain. And and as we talked about, there's acute stress, right? There is cortisone levels that are healthy and appropriate, they're very helpful into helping us grow and shape and form ourselves. And then there's levels of chronic or complex stress that literally changes the way our brain is developing. So a big part of this study focused on people under the age of 18, because that is, you know, your brain is still forming until you're 25. And having a lot of these changes happen at a younger age versus maybe an adult who's experiencing some of these, there are differences in the way your brain is developed. And with that cortisone and adrenaline dump, that's increasing your heart rate. I mean, that that's putting stress on your heart, on your liver, on all of your organs, it's all connected. So when you have that acute stress that's healthy and good, your body knows how to cope with that. But when you have chronic or complex stress, is not supported by some factor of resiliency. your body doesn't know how to cope with that and it changes and that that's where you're finding those those chronic heart disease, cancer, diabetes because it's putting all kinds of undue pressure on all of that if it goes untreated and unsupported.
0: Okay So how do we you know this, this study showed that checking in with kids and being kind of a responsible adult for a child, can make a huge impact in their life. How do parents check in with their kids and how do other people that are maybe in a community sense in the church setting or a school setting, a coach setting, how can those people check in with kids to prevent, you know, this kind of epidemic of mental health we're having?
1: There, there are a lot of different ways and and I am, I am against that right and wrong because I think everybody's different. Every child's different. What's right for one kid may not be right for the other kid. You know, some some people's kind of tough love approach could be right for some kids and it could be really detrimental to others. So kind of knowing the kid, the community member, how you approach. And if your approach isn't right and you're getting some resistance, maybe talking to another adult who could check in with that kid. You know, you hear that often, especially with parents, you're, you're, you're their parent, you know, and sometimes your parenting skills are met with resistance. Most of the time, especially for teenagers, they're met with resistance. And that does not mean you're not a good parent and you don't care about your kid, but it might mean, well, let's check in with somebody else. Maybe, you know, your kid plays sports, check in with their coach and say, Hey, you know, I've noticed these things. And I was wondering if you could talk to my son or daughter about this. Or, you know, if they're in a youth group or a teacher they're close with or an adult friend they're close with, you know, and and then I kind of circle back to that adult because a lot of times when children and teenagers are processing events during those, you know, prime years of cognitive development, they might need to talk to somebody who has some more experience and maybe more connections to their frontal lobe. Just to kind of close that idea of what you can do within trauma-informed care. You know, you've got communities and schools who can take responsibility, having parenting classes, sponsored summer camps, after-school activities, you know, strengthening some of those economic supports for families, changing social norms that makes supporting parents okay. You know, a lot of times we get that, what a terrible parent. You know what? that parent's doing the best they can with what they have, and your judgment and stigma is not going to help that child. So how do we kind of address those those social norms? How do we make sure that all levels of income have quality child care and education early in life? Enhancing those parenting skills, or maybe even intervening to lessen harms and prevent future risk. How can we train people to, to recognize those signs and symptoms of trauma and maybe intervene?
0: That's that's awesome. I want to transition now to adult trauma and how that can differ from childhood trauma. Is there a difference?
1: There is a difference in the way it can manifest long term. So with any trauma, if you can. So let's rewind a little bit. Experiencing a trauma does not necessarily mean and in most cases does not mean you're going to have any kind of post traumatic stress disorder it's kind of that response to the traumatic event, kind of going back to that definition that it's that emotional response to a terrible event. It's not the terrible event itself. So in a lot of the way we perceive our world is changed based on our cognitive ability to process it and the supports we have to process it. And, you know, with the new, so there's, We're on the DSM-5 right now. And since PTSD was introduced, we've had six different DSMs in between there. So that that idea of what trauma is and how it manifests in your body has changed drastically since the 80s because of research and ongoing
0: discussions like this. Adult trauma is going to be probably easier to deal with. Your brain's more developed. It's not going to have as big effect on the rest of your life
1: unsupported trauma still has a huge effect on your life.
0: So let's say I went through a giant breakup with my girlfriend. She cheated on me. For me, that would be a giant emotional experience. It Would, would that be considered trauma or not so much?
1: Hmm. That is a, like according to DSM criteria, that would not be considered a trauma. It is a kind of an, a big emotional response, but it doesn't have that event triggering it right, of of something physical, sexual, medical, it does have that emotional component, but to fit like a DSM, that would not quite fit that criteria. Now, does that affect you? Yes. I like to think of the DSM as as that book of labels that makes insurance pay for treatment, (laughs) right? Yep. You can be on a spectrum of any of those disorders, I'm using air quotes again, at any point in your life. And it really comes down to, do you want insurance to pay for treatment or do you want to do some of this work on your own? And then that emotional response is going to be different and it will affect you differently based on the way you obtain supports.
0: So, support from this conversation, one of the biggest things I've realized is support is very, very necessary in all stages of life and all experiences, whether we've focused on the bad ones today, um, <laughs> but I can imagine having support a good experience is also very helpful.
1: Absolutely. You've got risk factors and protective factors on both sides of any kind of adverse child experience or adult experience, right? Some of those protective factors are having a close friend, you know, if we're just looking at adults here, um, having a close family member. Being very proactive in self-care, maybe journaling or taking time to create that mindful space in between the traumatic events, right? You're not just reliving them because even that's another really important distinction is it's not necessarily just the event, but reliving that event in your brain causes the same neurotransmitters to dump cortisone and adrenaline, whether it's happening in real life or happening in your brain, you're still having a a physiological response to it. So how are you creating time and space so that your, your body can recoup so that cortisone and adrenaline is not affecting your heart, your kidneys and your liver and the way that your, your body handles stress. That's a
0: huge piece. So if somebody was going to come to you and say, Hey, Katie, I've got this past trauma, I need to work through it. What does the roadmap look like for that person? I know everybody is an individual, so it's going to be different for everybody, but is there a general roadmap where you can say, okay, the first few sessions, we're going to kind of figure out what's causing this, and then we're going to move on to kind of treatment, or how does that work?
1: (laughs) Well, as as you said, it's very individualized. And the way I might address a sexual trauma would be different than the way I might address a medical trauma, but the the physiological responses are the same for each individual, right? I mean their their manifestation of these traumas are the same, but the treatment of these might be different. And then that's kind of hard to go in so broadly with a with any type of trauma, you kind of want to start where the client's at. You know, depending on what your roadmap says or not, if the client is not ready to go there, you can't because each time they, your hope is to desensitize, right? So that when you have conversations or thoughts or feelings, you're not reliving that experience and having those physiological responses in your body with the increased heart rate, the sweating, the cortisone and adrenaline dumps, you're, you're trying to desensitize that. And you got to start where the client is and if the client's ready to dive right in I want to talk about these things I want to work through these things I want skills to put into my toolbox right away that's awesome but a lot of times you have clients who acknowledge there's a problem but are not ready to address it so you got to start where they're at to be able to get there and sometimes you know depending on your clinician there are clinicians who say hey I want to sign a contract that you're ready to work on these things or you're wasting my time. And there's some clinicians who start way back and say, hey, I'm glad you have this awareness. Let's start
0: here. Where can we go from here? That is probably one of the better explanations I've gotten of that question because I've asked it to a lot of therapists, you know, how do you start? How do you, where's the middle and where's the end? And it is so personal for every single person. But I think you mentioned one thing there that was acknowledging where they're at. So if you can come to therapy already acknowledging where you're at, is that helpful for a therapist? That's
1: very helpful for a therapist because we, we have a starting ground. But again, that starting ground might change as you start processing things. Like, hey, I think I do these things because of this. And then as you start talking about it and processing it and maybe implementing some of that breath work or different skills that you learn in therapy, you realize actually, that was also just a symptom. It might go back to this or to this or to this. And, and you, you kind of start, you know, blossoming that flower or peeling back that onion. And you realize there's way more layers than you ever
0: thought. Let's say that I can't find a therapist in my area. There's six to nine months out. Can I start working on this on my own? Absolutely. And that's been a huge
1: progress in smartphone technology, right? I I hesitated before I said that because there's a a lot of the ethics have not caught up to anything internet technology-based, right? There's a lot of things that we should consider before diving into social media, uh, MedMD, or any of those things, but they do have different apps that you can put on your your cell phone now that are cognitive behavioral therapy apps where it's, they ask you prompts and you journal. They have insight timers where like you're creating this bubble in between your trauma of peaceful thoughts, of, of bringing some positivity into your thoughts, which has huge outcomes in treating trauma, right? Just that gratitude treatment, which I could go in for another hour. So I won't, but there's all kinds of different mindfulness apps and different things that help you create space and maybe start working on that through journaling, through positive recollection of experiences, right? But depending on your trauma response, some of those could trigger more responses. So you kind of have to have that self-awareness that, hey, I could either start this on my own or be, wow. I really need some help with this because I'm having more triggers to these helpful aids than any, any positive experience. And that's when you kind of want to reach out to a, a professional or a,
0: or a support group. I think one of my final questions in this trauma section is what are some of your favorite tools to help people?
1: That that's a, that's a tough question because just like traumas, an onion. You know, the, the treatment to trauma is an onion.
0: What are your favorite ones that you maybe do on a personal basis?
1: On a personal basis, I do a lot of journaling. I do daily gratitude morning and night. Uh, there's a lot of neuroscience behind the idea of transforming your neural connectors through gratitude and positive recollection and just being able to rewire your own brain. Just coming up with three things you're grateful for every day. You can start kind of rewiring some of those super highways that are in that negativity bias that make you fear everything. You're starting to rewire that right away. Music-based therapy, all, all of those things that can kind of have the ability to take you out of that physiological response of trauma. And maybe put you somewhere in a safer place that you can actually process it. All of those things
0: are helpful. You know, every single mental health professional I've talked to ever has said like the same things. And that is like gratitude journaling and just general mindfulness techniques of understanding where you're at, what you're doing, and breathing.
1: And so much of that trauma-informed care research is now funding a lot of that research on mindfulness, on breath work, and it's getting a lot more media representation right now and school funding and medical mental health funding because they are actually seeing that these these techniques that are as old as time itself really do help and we need to pay attention to them.
0: Okay. Well, do you want to give a shout out on where people can find you?
1: Yeah. I recently launched a website. It is MindfulSpaceTelehealth.com.
0: Um, is there anything else, words of wisdom you want to leave?
1: You know, I love the name of your podcast. Just be a good human. You know, all those small acts of kindness add up. Even just complimenting somebody can really change their outlook for their day. or And sometimes they hold on to that for life. You know, just be a good human.
0: Thanks again to Katie for the chat about trauma. And thanks to the sponsor of this podcast, level10lifecoach.com. To learn more about their 15-day digital detox, visit level10lifecoach.com. The biggest thanks goes out to our listeners. Thanks for joining the journey and learning how to be a human being.